All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a fantastic show for you this morning, and we kick it off with federal prison inmates set to get the COVID-19 vaccine starting today. 600 prisoners incarcerated in federal jails set to get the vaccine today. So, yes, that means that prisoners like Robert Picton, for example, could be at the front of the line set to receive the COVID-19 vaccine before vulnerable seniors, before many frontline healthcare workers, even before the prison guards who are guarding him in jail. I've got the president of the prison guards union on the show. He's coming up later today. I'll tell you, they are furious, furious that the prisoners are getting the shots before the guards. He'll be coming up at 11 o'clock. But first, let's kick off this subject right now with my guest, Kathy McLeod, conservative MP for Kamloops Thompson Caribou. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, the Conservatives have spoken out quite forcefully on this issue. Can you tell me your position on it? You know, the, this government likes to say they're making science-based decisions. They had an expert panel advise them of who should get the vaccines and when they should get it. And certainly the inmate population was put into what they call the second tier. So, you know, as we're looking at uh, seniors in homes, as we're looking at nurses who still have no idea when they're going to get the shots, we're hearing about really the government not following its own expert committee. Absolutely, the federal government has a duty of care, but they're, they're jumping the queue as opposed to following the expert advice of their own committee. Okay, yeah, I'm taking a look at that report from this committee uh, right now online. And yeah, the stage one, so the recommendation for the people who should get the vaccine first includes residents and staff of long-term care res uh, homes for senior citizens, adults 70 years and older, healthcare workers, and adults in Indigenous communities. That's stage one. If you go down to stage two, that's where it says prison inmates. Stage, stage so two. Why is the so, government jumping yeah. its own its own advice from? And this was developed by experts who spend a whole lot of time looking at how you're going to get the most effectiveness from the vaccine. So, really, um, it makes no sense to us at all. And especially, I know I talked to a nurse this morning who uh, provides services to Indigenous communities in the north, and he hasn't heard a word about when he's going to get his uh, vaccination. Okay, well, the federal government, of course, is saying that the prisoners who will get the vaccine starting today are a vulnerable population because they're incarcerated, they're living in close quarters, um, they're cooped up in jail, so that makes them vulnerable to the virus, and we've seen outbreaks in prisons. They also say that the prisoners who, are receiving, who will be receiving the vaccine today include elderly inmates who are uh, at acute risk. Of, of developing severe symptoms if they catch the virus. Do, is that an adequate explanation? Um, we have the premiers across this country pleading for more doses for them to vaccinate their tier one. So we have the tier one, many, many people in those categories, and there's not enough vaccine. So to me, it, yes, we have a duty of care. Yes, um, like work camps, uh, we know that the prison population is at increased risk as our work camps. But as our meatpacking camps, um, I think there has only been three deaths. And, you know, not only, I can't ever say only three deaths, but there's been three deaths 
in the federal prison. You look at what's happening in our seniors' homes um, across mm. this country, and again, they had expert advice. They're not following their expert advice. Speaking to Conservative MP Kathy McLeod about the rollout of vaccines for federal prison inmates that's starting today. Uh, let me play this for you. This is Federal Safety Minister Bill Blair, and he has heard the complaints about this program with uh, prison inmates getting the vaccine early starting today, and here he is uh, defending it. We're making a small number of those vaccines available to those individuals who are particularly at acute risk in our federal institutions. We have um, a, a duty of, of care for those who are in our custody um, to ensure that, that they are treated fairly and that they are kept safe. Okay, duty of care, you mentioned that earlier. He also said it's a small number of prisoners who are included in this rollout of the vaccine today, so we're looking at 600 prisoners. Your thoughts? Um, we have a duty of care also to our Indigenous communities in remote and northern areas. We have a duty of care for the federal government nurses uh, who are providing care. So, yes, we have a duty of care. We have a severe lack of vaccine, as we heard the premiers, as we're all trying to get our phase one done. We have many people who are in phase two that are elderly with chronic conditions who are going to be looking down the road. There's actually something, a new tool out there where you can look at when you might get the vaccine. It's an online tool. It's quite interesting. Um, you know, so I did it for myself this morning, and fair enough, I'm going to wait my turn. It's going to be probably the fall when my turn comes up. Yeah. So, again, we need to be reasonable. We need to be fair. Yes, we have a duty of care, but we have a whole lot of priority populations, and we need to follow. They say they're going to follow the advice of the experts. They need to do that. Okay, one of the things I, that surprises me about this program, when I first heard about it, I thought, okay, they're going to vaccinate prisoners. They're in close court, confined quarters. I can, you can sort of understand the rationale. But I thought prison guards would receive the vaccine at the same time. Like if the, if the guards were receiving the vaccine too, I, I think maybe it makes it a little bit more understandable to the, to the general public. But the, the union that represents prison guards and federal jails are furious because they are not receiving the vaccine. The prisoners are getting the vaccine first before the guards. Your thoughts? Um, as we are doing our residential care facilities, it's, uh, again, identified as important that you do both. So yeah. the, not only the residents, but the people that are providing the care. And that's happening as part of the Tier 1. So, again, it's another decision. Um, and I understand the guards and how worried they would be about that particular decision. Thank you for coming on today. We're following this issue very closely today. Appreciate right, thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy McLeod. Thank you. Same to you. Kathy McLeod, Conservative MP, Kamloops Thompson Caribou. The president of the Prison Guards Union will be my guest later on the show. He'll be on at 1130. And they are very upset today that prison guards not receiving the vaccine today while, the, while prisoners are. Let me check in briefly here with Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto, at the Toronto Sun, who's written about this. Brian, thanks for jumping on. Uh, thanks for having me on, Mike. It's, uh, and, you know, Kathy was absolutely right. This is the type of thing that shouldn't be happening if you're following the public health guidelines, which they claim they were. They're, they're not. Well, okay, if we take a look at the public health guidelines, it recommends um, in that first wave of recommended people to get the vaccine first, it includes 
uh, senior citizens, right? It's like seniors over the age of 70. So clearly you've got prisoners who are over the age of 70 in federal jails. Should they be, okay, should but, they be first? But let, let me stop because I've read yeah. that document uh, quite closely. It says at first, the first group is the group that is um, seniors living in congregate care settings like nursing homes and right. the healthcare workers that look after them. They have not been looked after. As far as people over 70, like Robert Picton, it yeah. says people over the age of 70 are in stage one, uh, starting at age 80 and above and working down in five-year increments. Then you've got um, uh, the uh, indigenous communities where if you have a, an outbreak, it would be, you know, have extreme consequences. So we're talking places where there is no healthcare infrastructure. And now that we've started to see COVID go into places like Nunavut, then, yeah, that is a worry that we, we have to take seriously. None but, of these but, groups have been looked after, yeah. and we're going into prisons now. I, I understand that we have to vaccinate, but they're not following their own advice. They're claiming they are, and then they're turning around and saying that if you don't agree with this decision, that you are somehow, um, you know, I think they're actually doing this for political reasons, to try and get someone like Kathy McLeod or myself to say this is wrong, and then they turn around and say, you're not compassionate. You don't care about yeah. prisoners. Well, it's not that I don't care about prisoners, but I think someone with that is in a nursing home is obviously, most likely, well over the age of 70, and they tend to have two, three, four underlying comorbidities. That puts them at greater risk than anybody else, which is why nursing homes have been hardest hit straight across the country. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about federal prison inmates in Canada set to receive the COVID-19 vaccine starting today. 600 prisoners uh, set to receive the vaccine. There's been a lot of pushback on this. The federal conservative opposition, you just heard my conversation there with Kathy McLeod, the conservative MP from British Columbia, uh, saying that they don't support this, uh, this program. Have a listen to this. This is Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his reaction. Well, when I, when I first heard it, I didn't believe it. Uh, I had a get my team to double check that they had the information right because uh, what I understand you know you're, you're giving the most dangerous criminals in the entire country folks they, they, these are uh, people that are in federal prison penitentiaries uh, again the most uh, dangerous criminals in the entire country how do you square this how do you put them ahead of long-term care patients how do you put them in, in front of all the most vulnerable and we're, we're, we're scraping every vaccine we can get. Okay, continuing my conversation now with Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. I can understand, Brian, the, the backlash to this, but you're not saying that federal prisoners should not receive the vaccine, right? No, in fact, they're, they're yeah. at stage two before most of the general population, yeah. uh, along with other people that live in congregate care centers. You can think of people that are you know, uh, adult uh, homes for people with disabilities or homeless shelters. Uh, yeah. They're all in in the same category. Uh, they arrive in stage two, along with essential workers and healthcare workers not covered in the initial rollout. That's before you and I get in line for a vaccine. So I'm not saying don't vaccinate prisoners. I'm saying follow your own advice. And when right. you're caught not following your own advice, don't say that this is... Uh, this is the public health advice. It's not. I know it's only a small number. Yeah. It's only uh, 1,200 doses or enough for 600. But premiers across the country are running out. 
know, Ontario was a bit ahead of British Columbia in that measure. All the provinces have picked up the pace, though. Uh, I believe BC has about 54,000 doses they've received. They've, uh, uh, as of last night or late yesterday afternoon, had inoculated something like 41,000 people. Um, so, you know, BC is going to need more doses. Everyone needs more doses. And this was a political decision. I just want to say quickly, hmm. because yeah. you're the, the uh, promo that you played for Linda Steele show just before we came back, it had a clip of the prime minister saying how frustrated it is that um, uh, vaccines were in freezers and not going into arms. That was from earlier in the week. Yes. And, you know, I agreed with him on that. And I gave him kudos for it and said, yeah, he's right. And they need to pick it up. They all have. But at the news conference, the disgrace of a news conference that the prime minister just had, he wasn't asked once about prisoners getting the vaccine ahead of everyone else, despite the advice, nor was he asked about the fact that within the week since he complained about premiers, that they have picked up the pace and they're going to run out. It was a disgrace of a news conference where they asked him more about Donald Trump in Washington than the problem unfolding within our own borders, which happens far too often with the people that are paid to come to Parliament Hill. No, I would have liked to have heard directly from Trudeau on, on this matter today as well and I, I am kind of surprised as well that he was not asked about it because especially if you go back and you, you take a look at these recommendations from his own advisory committee as, as you mentioned so these are the the recommendations from the national advisory committee on immunization advising the government on this mm-hmm. stage one the people who are supposed to receive the vaccine first residents and staff in long-term care seniors 80 years of age and older health care workers and adults in ind- indigenous communities like you said prison inmates go next second in stage two so it does appear that you got some cue jumping going on Here, now here's the other thing that jumps out at me brian for your, for your thoughts Prison guards are not receiving the vaccine. Like when I first heard this, I thought, okay, maybe maybe they're vaccinating the guards at the same time. No, the prisoners go first, and and the guards got to wait. Your thoughts? Well, guards, prison guards would be considered essential workers. And when are they supposed to get the vaccine? According to this National Advisory Committee on Immunization, immunization in stage two, at the same time as right. the inmates. Yeah. So yeah. You know, look, this this was a political decision made by the government. They're not following their own advice. They're not following the science. They're not following the experts, which they always say that they're following the science, Mike. They're always making evidence-based well, yeah. decisions, yeah. but they're not in this case. And, and the guards are... Are right to be mad. Although, yeah. although uh, they they say that the the, pr- the prison inmates who are being targeted in this rollout today are vulnerable inmates, so they're elderly inmates. Like you you mentioned, Robert Picton as an example. Like how old is Picton? Picton's in his seventies, isn't he? He's seventy one. Yeah. Let me just point something out on that, and and this will anger a lot of people. For you to be that old and in a federal prison, you had to have done something pretty darn nasty in your life. Yeah, yeah. Seventy-one. You know, federal prison. You're you're not going to be seventy-five and eighty years old unless you're a lifer you're in for a minor fraud uh, conviction, yeah. um, or something where people were not physically hurt in some way. You're talking about the Robert Pickens or the Bruce MacArthur, who was the city. He's about to turn seventy. He was the serial killer who stalked Toronto's gay village. Yes, uh, he'll be in line ahead of people that are, are actually. 
okay. most vulnerable. So it, it, it's infuriating that they're doing this and then using it as a wedge issue. Thanks a lot. Um, Brian, thanks for thank coming you. on today. All right, welcome back. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the deadly gang violence going on in Metro Vancouver now and the slaying of one of Metro's most notorious gang figures, Gary Kang, 24 years old. He was associated with the Red Scorpion gang, gunned down in his parents' home in South Surrey on Wednesday morning. To discuss this now, we turn to the best crime reporter in British Columbia, Kim Bolin from the Vancouver Sun, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Kim. Hey, hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this once again. It's always awesome to have you on here. Let's, let's talk about this fellow, Gary Kang. He was shot and killed Wednesday morning. This happened right inside his parents' home, right? Inside his parents' home. Wow. Uh, you know, I'm hearing, you know, some unconfirmed details that it was a pretty gruesome scene. And, uh, you know, ironically, he was on bail awaiting uh, sentencing in a case related to a Vancouver Police uh, Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit investigation dating back to um, 2018. So, you know, if he had been in jail and hadn't gotten bail, he would uh, likely still be alive. Okay, that's an unusual, I imagine, to have a, a targeted hit like that. It appears inside like a private home, like a parent's home. You know, you, th you usually think of these things in like a drive-by shooting or a restaurant or something. But man, right inside the guy's parent's home. Well, that's right. Or outside Weird. in the driveway if, yeah. when someone's coming and going. Uh, yeah, it was very brazen. But, you know, as uh, some people related to this conflict are pointing out in their, you know, tit-for-tat uh, chat on Instagram... It was very similar uh, to how Govinder Graywall of the Brothers Keepers was killed on December uh, 22nd, 2017. And uh, the Kangs were once part of this Brothers Keepers. They split away, and, you know, this kind of back and forth has been a big part of gang tensions ever since. Okay, so this has been kind of a gang war between these two particular gangs, right? The, uh, the Red Scorpions and the Brothers Keepers. Is that what this comes down to? It's like a, what is this, a drug turf war? Yeah, well, and it's personal, too, because yeah. uh, an associate of Govinder Graywalls has been charged with killing uh, Gary King's brother in October of 2017, wow. right? So, uh, you know, if that was a starting point in this latest round in the gang war, it, you know, would have been October of 2017. Govinder Graywall was shot inside his penthouse apartment in North Vancouver uh, while he was asleep, you know, so... This was quite similar to that, as people have been pointing out as they're calling each other out online, which is in itself fairly shocking. Well, yeah, that is extraordinary, too. And I encourage people to check out your Twitter feed, at Kay Bolin on Twitter. And, and Kim, I'm just looking at the Instagram post that came out yesterday that you, uh, you tweeted out. A friend of this slain gangster, Gary Kang, posting on Instagram after he was gunned down. And it says, rest in peace, brother for you now we will go harder than ever blood in blood out wow so that's like what promising retribution promising retribution yeah. and honestly within hours of um you know the well i would say within an hour of the shooting last night that i now believe was in retaliation for gary kang's murder based on what i'm hearing uh, you know, these guys, again, were posting. So they're very knowledgeable about what's happening. You know, it's fairly shocking that it's right out in the open. Uh, now, you don't see people saying, well, gee, I did it. But, you know, they're sure hinting that their friends were involved in it. 
so, you know, and it is true that it's sort of brothers keepers versus Kangs, but there, there aren't, you know, clear teams with jerseys. Uh, you know, there are people that are affiliated to both sides that wouldn't identify specifically as brothers keepers. For example, you know, the person who was, uh, I believe, was uh, killed last night is more Wolfpack slash Brothers Keepers, right? So, you know, uh, there are broader affiliations beyond just, you know, the specific names of Kang, you know, or Brothers Keepers. In fact, Kangs are connected to Red Scorpions. They also have other associations, as do the Brothers Keepers on the other side. But it gets really messy. And, you know, somewhere in the middle of all this, there are actually overlaps between some of the associates, right, which must be how they're getting intelligence about each other because they sure seem to know exactly where people are at any given point enough to be able to, you know, arrange a murder on short notice. Wow, that is shocking stuff. I'm speaking to Kim Boland, crime reporter at the Vancouver Sun. Um, what are the police saying about this uh, this slaying? Well, I think, you know, they fully understood the magnitude of the Kang slaying. They were already... Uh, calling, um, you know, saying they were going to have extra gang police out in the community to try and head off retaliation. Uh, but, you know, we now see uh, what we believe is retaliation, you know, 36, 40 hours later. Yeah, when you have these type of targeted hits going on in a gang war raging, and the, the police will generally say, what, the public, the public should not worry, right? Because it's not the public that are being targeted. Yeah, well, that's it's true in a broad sense. The public aren't being targeted. Uh, but, you know, if you were out walking your dog in a park in Richmond last night, you might have seen mm-hmm. something very shocking and you potentially were put at risk. Uh, you know, the Gary Kang murder, uh, other people in the family were put at risk. Uh, you know, if yeah. we, these guys are so brazen and they just really don't seem to care at all about human life. So, I mean, if you were a witness or saw someone, you know, fleeing from a scene, you might be at risk, right? So this whole, I do understand that the public is not being targeted, but if these hits are being done out in the open, in public places, obviously there's some potential for innocent people or uninvolved people to be hit. How difficult is it for the police to solve these type of cases? Well, I usually say, don't say solve, I say you know, prosecute, get charges, right? Because they often know right away who's involved if they don't specifically know the name of the shooter. Um, you know, but they, they have very good intelligence about what's happening right now across the region. They're doing their best to, you know, stop people before things get even more out of hand. Uh, but that's a long way from being able to produce enough evidence to get charges approved. Um, you know, if we, we see from some of the charges that were laid in 2020, they were in older cases that date back a couple of years or three years or even longer, right? So they work on them. Uh, obviously, when you get a batch like this, as we've seen over the last month, uh, it's more challenging resource-wise. But, you know, I, I expect there will be charges in some of these cases, but it may take some time. Do you, ex- do you ex- expect more bloodshed, more attacks in, in the days ahead? It sounds like a lot of these gangsters must be looking over their shoulders here right now. Yeah, uh, you know, I hate to predict violence, you know, because y- you don't want to appear to, you know, be advocating for it in any way. Uh, let's hope it stops, but uh, obviously... You know, people in the gang world are on high alert, and police are certainly on high alert, fearing that there could be more violence. Kim, thank you for coming on today. Anytime, Mike. Thanks for uh, having uh, me.
Okay, welcome back to the show. That is some of the audio that was recorded by my next guest, Brendan Gutenschwager. He is an independent video journalist. And his video of the swarming of the Congress on Wednesday, the invasion of the U.S. Congress by Trump supporters there, the story that has flashed around the world, his video has gone all around the world. He was right in the thick of it there in Washington on Wednesday, and I'm really grateful to him for taking the time to talk to us. Brendan, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. We appreciate it, too. I mean, it's extraordinary, the video uh, that you were able to, to get on Wednesday at this, this event in Washington. Uh, how did, can, you, can you tell the story of how you, got, how you got in there? I mean, I've seen other videos, journalists and reporters get roughed up, and they were, no one, very few people were able to get the type of video that you got. How did you do it? Uh, well, for one, I am very familiar with just in general how protests and things of that nature tend to go, although this is a very, very unique one. Obviously, you know, it escalated way further than anything I've seen before. Um, so I just use a lot of the same principles that I apply to a lot of the 2020 protests and, you know, moving with the crowd and things like that and kind of knowing where to position myself uh, and then just kind of, you know, use those same techniques for this. Although, you know, on this scale, I've never had to apply it before. So it was very like a volatile situation, but I just did my best to get there i knew that what was happening was extremely extremely historic and it needed to be documented for you know that purpose you know critically so i I did my best to make sure that that would happen yeah well congratulations you did an incredible job because a lot of the video that people will see flashed all around the world cnn msnbc fox everywhere is is your stuff and you're right it's historic did you ever feel like you were in danger in there you know it was sort of a situation where I didn't know if the entire crowd was in danger at any moment. So I, I kind of felt like everything was really, really volatile at any moment, anything could happen because it was just so unpredictable. You know, nothing like this has ever happened at the Capitol building in the modern era. So I didn't know if at any moment, you know, the vents would open up and there's tear gas going through or something. I mean, I, I truly, I had no idea because it's just so, you know, just, just nothing like ever before. So, yeah, there definitely was that element of fear there, um, yeah. you know, less less so on like the lawn of the Capitol because there was just larger crowds and it was more dispersed. But even there, it was very, very just like an anger filled environment in many cases, especially near the front lines there. And that was very, you know, nerve wracking to be there what, for. What was the craziest stuff you saw? Would you say like the most intense stuff that you shot? Probably some of the most intense would have been them breaking the windows yeah. uh, at part of the Capitol there. And then also uh, there was a part later in the afternoon, and what was remarkable, this is actually after the president had already released a couple of statements. Um, this is after 5 p.m. local time Eastern there, and they were still clashing with police outside the Capitol attempting to get in. And there it was a really violent clash. They were throwing poles at the police. They were taking baseball bats to their riot shields. Uh, some of the people there had actually taken riot shields from other police and had them there at the front lines and then they were holding them so it was uh you know just to see something like that it was just really really remarkable and just that one really stood out for sure speaking to freelance reporter brendan gutenschwager he's recorded some of the most iconic video of the attack on congress on on wednesday there's been a lot of talk and analysis the last 48 hours brendan about the the security breakdown the lack of security like what did what did you see there as this whole thing started how come the police were not able to control the situation 
Yeah, that was one of the most remarkable things about this whole entire situation was the police response was so subdued compared to what I've seen with many other protests. And when this was a protest that weren't at the Capitol building, ones just on the streets of D.C. had a stronger response than what was happening at the Capitol. It just seemed that they were totally, completely unprepared for this. I saw maybe 100 to 150 officers outside of the building at most when there were crowds of tens of thousands outside. And while ultimately it's just the front line that's actively facing off against the police and some people in the back of the crowd may not even be aware of what's going on because it goes that far back, um, nevertheless, the sheer presence of that many people meant that they weren't going to be able to do any kind of like penning people in or mass arrests. And so eventually the crowd just totally overwhelmed them and they just pushed the police aside, ran into the building, ran through the building. There were many moments when police tried to block certain areas, try to prevent people from getting into certain offices or certain, you know, entrances. And the sheer number of people that were storming this just overwhelmed the police and they had no choice. A lot of them got pushed up against the walls. And uh, and, and so that really it was just uh, numbers overwhelming the Capitol Police. Yeah. And I was surprised to see that there weren't more in place ahead of time for something like this, given that this wasn't a secret demonstration this was very much well known for weeks in advance that it was going to happen maybe not that this specifically would but there were going to be a lot of people there in dc and so yeah the security measures just simply were not in place right and you're a guy who has videotaped a lot of these other protests like black lives matter protests and i i believe you were in kenosha wisconsin i i believe right for a deadly deadly shooting that occurred at one of the protests right yes yeah i was uh, one of the videographers that had captured that as well yeah. uh, amazing you've been on the front line yeah. of his history here it's incredible so y- you think that the police response was was different here in washington on wednesday compared to some of these earlier protests like like when you compare the police response to a black lives matter protest compared to what we saw on wednesday would you say it was different oh most definitely yeah, yeah. they i have never seen um other than a couple select scenarios where the Black Lives Matter protests overwhelmed the police. Typically, you'd have the clashes and things like that, but eventually police would either start making mass arrests or they would just start deploying a lot of crowd control munitions, whatever it might be, and uh, and ultimately quell the situation within a few hours. Obviously, there have been a couple exceptions to that, Minneapolis being one of them and Kenosha being another notable example where um, you know parts of the city had burned because of that. But for the yeah. most part, especially more recently, Last couple months, police typically have um, been more in place ahead of time as a result of what happened last summer in those other cities. And so I was shocked that here we were in January of 2021. Everybody knew just in general how, you know, protests can get violent in the United States. That's not a unique thing at this point. Um, And they just simply I, I don't know if they just didn't take it seriously or if they just didn't want to believe that it would happen with this specific kind of crowd. Um, but for whatever reason, they just did not have those same preparations that they did even just a couple of weeks ago in D.C. Yeah. when there were uh, two opposing groups that were both marching downtown. Just got one minute left here, Brendan. When you go into these crowds in these dangerous situations, I mean, this is dangerous for you as a journalist. I mean, what kind of preparations do you take? Are you are you in there wearing body armor and a helmet or what or to protect yourself? Well, unfortunately, uh, in many cases previously, I had been. With yeah. this, I wasn't even able to because I didn't know it was going to escalate so quickly. I think it took wow. a lot of and other reporters that I spoke to there by surprise. So while I do own a gas mask, I didn't have it on me because I didn't think that this morning march at the Ellipse was going to suddenly turn into clouds of tear gas outside the Capitol building. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, there's preparations I do make, but unfortunately this escalated so quickly that you just kind of had to roll with the punches and, you know, kind of fly by the seat of your pants on that. Brendan, I'm glad you're safe. The, the work you've done here in the last uh, couple of days is extraordinary. And congratulations on it. I hope you stay safe going forward. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, welcome back to the show. If we go back in time, if you remember the former Liberal government, you got to go way back in British Columbia when Gordon Campbell was the premier remember when the liberals privatized a lot of healthcare workers basically kind of tore up their contract you might remember the fuss and the fight over bill 29 a lot of those workers uh, ended up getting fired ended up then working for private contractors for less money well now you've got an ndp government in power we've had one for several years now and a lot of those workers are saying we want our jobs back with government. They want those jobs that were privatized brought back into the public health care system. The Hospital Employees Union actually has got a campaign running on this, putting pressure on this NDP government to do exactly that, to hire these workers back. Have a listen to one of their ads here. This pandemic has taught us all to value what's really important like public health care and our frontline hospital workers. So you might be surprised to learn that thousands of those workers who keep our hospitals safe and clean and prepare and deliver meals to patients work for private companies. And they earn less today than 20 years ago. It's time for BC to get private companies out of hospital care because public health care is better for patients and workers. A message from the Hospital Employees Union. Okay, get private companies out of health care. Let's discuss this now with my panel. Mike Old, he's a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union. Mike, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Also on the line is Gwenda Alexander. She works as a housekeeper at Burnaby Hospital. She's the chair of her uh, HEU union local there. Gwenda, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks to both of you being there. Mike, that was a free ad, free ad there. We're not going to charge you for that one. Okay. Thanks so much. We appreciate yeah, okay. the discount. Okay. Okay. Um, can you remind the listeners what this is all about? Like, you know, if, if people may have forgotten what happened here, but can you explain what the previous Liberal government did way back then? Yeah, well, back in uh, January of 2002, the former B.C. Liberal government brought in a law called Bill 29, the Health and Social Services Delivery Improvement Act. And uh, it basically ripped up key provisions of healthcare collective agreements and paved the way for the privatization of many, many hospital services and services and seniors care, and led to the uh, basically the firing of uh, eight to ten thousand workers, most of them women, over the next few years. And one of the biggest groups that uh, were affected by this were uh, workers who provide uh, you know critical services in our hospitals housekeeping, the front line of infection control, uh, dietary services, and uh, that work was contracted out to a number of, uh, you know, multinational corporations like Sodexo, Compass, Aramark, uh, Axiona, and uh, we've been basically, we reorganized those workers, we've been bargaining for better conditions ever since, but, the you know, the fact of the matter is those workers are being paid less today. Yeah. Uh, than they were during the SARS epidemic uh, 17 years ago, and this has got to change. We need to bring well, it back and be part of the healthcare team. And I guess, obviously, why the previous Liberal government did this was to save money, right? 
Well, uh, you know, you'll recall that right at the beginning of the B.C. liberal uh, reign, they made massive, massive tax cuts, and uh, they needed to pay for them. And one of the things they did was go after uh, mostly women who work in the healthcare system. Okay, let me go to uh, my other guest, Gwenda Alexander. So, Gwenda, was were you working for for um, government back when the Liberals did this when they brought this in? Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, um, we were working um, in the um, government sector, and then yeah. um, I think I was one year in before the um, contract flipping started. And once that started, we were our wage was reduced way down to ten dollars an hour. How much were you making before that? Was around eighteen dollars an hour. Whoa, whoa! So you and went from so you went from eighteen dollars an hour to ten dollars an hour. To ten dollars an hour wow. once the contract started. Yeah. <laughs> not, not only that, but once the contract started, and um, we end up doing what's called contract flipping, which yeah. means when when the contract is up, then they're bargaining for another contract, and that can end up being another um, provider. So we also had to go to contract flipping, which means that we our benefits was reduced. We were okay. stripped of our wages, right? Our job, we had to reapply for our job again under another company. And um, so we're going and, and stripped from all our benefits. So we were going back, starting from zero. And, you know, that basically made, made us feel that we weren't part of the healthcare system. Our job wasn't taken seriously. Right. What was your job? What is your job? Well, I, I work at uh, um, Burnaby Hospital, and I, I'm a housekeeper there, and I actually do the cleaning for the cancer center, basically. Wow. Okay. Um, now, since then, uh, you know, a lot of these workers have been organized into a union, the hospital employees union, so I assume your salary has gone up. Like, how much are you making now? Well, our salary is actually at seventeen twenty, and that's... Okay. That's taken a decade of bargaining to get it up to that. that right, so you still haven't still haven't caught up to what you were making before. No, we haven't. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Mike. Um, what do you What do you want the government to do here now? Well, you know, it's been it's been almost twenty years that these workers uh, have been privatized, and uh, you know, the government in uh, you know the 2018 they basically took Bill 29 and repealed the rest of it. That kind of clears the way to doing the right thing here, which is to start bringing these workers back under the direct control of uh, health authorities, so that they're uh, part of the healthcare team with the healthcare workers that they work beside every day. They'd be part of the provincial master agreement. They would see their wages go up about three bucks an hour right away. They would uh, they would uh, recover a pension plan. They would have better benefits. This is really important. These workers provide critical services, and I think in the middle of a pandemic, people have recognized just how important they are, and we should start treating them that way. So that's okay. what we've been calling on government to do. And I, I have to say, during the last election, the uh, NDP government uh, or the NDP uh, made a commitment uh, as part of their election platform to do just that. Okay, but it would cost more money, though, right? Because if you're going to give people a $3 an hour wage and you're going to give them a, a pension that they don't have now, it's going to, someone's got to pay for it. So you're, you're asking, you're effectively asking taxpayers to pay more money for these workers. Correct? You know, Fair I, to say? I, I, I think that in the middle of this pandemic, the public has really recognized that making these kind of investments in our healthcare system, uh, 
are really important and uh, and they will support this so yes it will cost some money but uh, you know it's well worth it it's worth it to make sure that we have a quality public health care system right okay so let me go back to Gwenda for a moment and Gwenda you mentioned that your your jobs includes uh, housekeeping services and in a mm-hmm. cancer cancer center um, mm-hmm. is, can you so does that include cleaning like cleaning surfaces to make sure they're free of uh, Say the yeah, COVID nineteen virus cleaning services, and this is an everyday procedure. We have to do this every single day. All the chairs, all the equipment, the IV poles must be sanitized every single day, and we do this every day for you know. And we supply what called quality care for the patients, and we also have to make sure that we we stay safe during this pandemic, and also that um, the patients are safe. So doing quality cleaning and we have to do this every single day, and it's the, we have to be making sure that our work is recognized for what we do because we do uh, um, hold our our cleaning to a high standard. So, all right, welcome back as we continue talking about healthcare workers that were privatized a long time ago by the previous Liberal government. If you remember, you got to go way back on this one. Gordon Campbell was the premier. Between eight and ten thousand healthcare workers were privatized back then. Uh, mostly cleaners, dietary technicians, and uh, working for private companies now. The union that represents them, the Hospital Employees Union, campaigning now to have them brought back into the public sector. My guests are Mike Old with the HEU, Gwenda Alexander. She's a housekeeper at Burnaby Hospital. Mike, just before we go to a couple of phone calls here, uh, you mentioned that you got an NDP government in power now, labor-friendly government. They promised... You correct me if you tell me if this is right. The NDP promised in the last election that they would bring these workers back into the public system, right? They absolutely did. They said that they would bring these valuable workers back into the public service. Right. I'm taking a look at their platform. It says we will reunite the health care team for better care. Says the B.C. liberals fired and contracted out housekeeping and dietary hospital workers. We're putting an end to big multinational corporations. That's the NDP campaign platform. The Minister of Health in uh, Adrian Dix in his mandate letter from the premier a few weeks ago uh, says that okay the, the language here is interesting because it says where possible and appropriate transition these workers back into the public health care system where well, where it possible is, it, is po- it is possible and appropriate so we're confident well say, you, you say it's you say it's uh, appropriate and uh, possible but is the government going to say that uh, you know, we're really confident that we're gonna we're gonna secure uh, uh, an agreement to get these workers back into the public system where they belong. That's really okay. really important for the long term health of our hospital system. Okay, very interesting issue. Let's take a couple of phone calls here. Rick and Delta. Hey, Rick. Yeah, my father in law was uh, uh, hospitalized in Burnaby uh, not long too long after the uh, Liberals changed the policy and privatized. He had uh, C. difficile probably five or six times in the six months that he was there before he passed away. Um, wow. My sister-in-law actually watched one of the new hirees who came in and wiped down the bathroom, walked into the bedroom area, and wiped down his railings on his bed with the same cloth. So, uh, And I've met other people who had 
pretty uh, sure that their loved ones passed away prematurely. Like when we went to visit them, you had to go through detours, take different elevators because this floor had it, that floor had it, this wing had it, and yet, you know, to wind your way around and then get there and see a, do- a sign on the door saying mask and mask and gowns mandatory. So, yeah, yeah it's got to go back to to into the public sector, paying these folks proper wages. Okay, Rick, thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, Gwenda, let me go to you. You work at Burnaby mm-hmm. Hospital. Um, yeah. I mean, the quality of the cleaning, I'm sure, I mean, you're do, you, your people are doing the cleaning now, even though you work for a private company. Uh, are you saying that the, quali- the quality is not up to standard? Or I'm yeah, sure your the, people are... The problem is we're having a lot of overturn with um, hi, um, new hires. Like, um, we need, we are understaffed, in the facility, we are really on the staff and we really need to step up where the staffing is concerned. You know, oh. um, the workers have a, a really heavy load and sometimes it's very difficult, difficult for us to complete a task if our load is so heavy. So we really need to see um, this go back in house so that we can somehow control the fact that we need staffing. We need staffing. I mean, the new, the new, the, the companies okay. right now they cut corners and do a lot of, um, you know, savings. Let's let's let me squeeze in another call here real quick because we're running out of time. Jason and Burnaby, hi Jason. We only got about a minute left though. Go ahead. Hey, let's do some math real quick. Uh, six thousand dollars a year. He says three dollars times two thousand hours. That's six thousand dollars times nine thousand workers is fifty-four million dollars. I would rather hire 540 more nurses. The market has already determined what these workers are worth. If they're underpaid, the market will fix it. Okay, Mike, what do you say to the, what do you say to that? Thanks for the call, Mike. What do you say to that? 30 seconds. Well, I'd say the market has completely failed the healthcare system here and we need to recognize that it takes a whole healthcare team to deliver good care and hospital housekeepers and dietary workers are a critical part of that team. It's time to treat them fairly. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, we've got uh, more phone calls that sadly we don't have time to get to, so we'll just have to have you back and talk more about this because I think there's an appetite for it. Really, really appreciate the opportunity. Glad okay. to come back soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, Gwenda. You. Thank you for coming on. That's Mike Old from the Hospital Employees Union, Gwenda Alexander. She's a housekeeper at Burnaby Hospital. Uh, phone me on the buzz line on that one. Leave me a voicemail. Tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. This is Mike Smith. we got lots more after this. Don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back to the program. Let's talk about Wednesday's shocking invasion of the U.S. Capitol building by a mob of Donald Trump supporters. Who were these people? Where did they come from? What do they believe? USA Today reports today, many of the people in that mob were members of right-wing extremist groups, many of them active online, and now using Wednesday's mayhem as a recruiting tool to attract new members. Let's talk about this now. What a great guest we've got for you. Uh, Brad Galloway, he's the coordinator at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. And his work, he he knows of what he speaks. He spent 13 years himself in the right-wing extremist movement. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, Brad. Hey there, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. Brad, I'm fascinated by, by your experience in your life. Can you talk a little bit about... 
about your years, the years that you spent as in right in a right wing extremist group yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, it was um, late nineties into uh, around twenty eleven uh, that I spent uh, hanging around and, and involved with the um, far right movement in both Canada and the U.S. And um, I, you know, it it uh, I'd like to say that things have changed, but obviously, what, with what we're seeing right now, uh, that's um, not really the case. But but um, I think my time in in the movement helps me um, understand and and assist me in the work that I'm involved in today. So I think that's um, it's important uh, the life experiences, but it's also um, you know it was a very a troubling, volatile, violent movement, and uh, it, it definitely has taken a toll on society. And my, it, within my involvement myself, it, uh, um, it it takes it it takes a lot to to leave these types of movements. So I think there's um, there's a lot of merits in 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 the work that uh, myself and and others are doing in this space to try to try to prevent right. and uh, disrupt these groups. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, what kind of stuff were you doing in those groups? When you were involved in the movement yourself, what kind of group were you involved with and what were you guys doing? Well, the, the group that, uh, that I was involved with was more of a white separatist group. So the, the idea was to create a sort of a white ethno state kind of idea and, and, um, and that, that sort of thing. And, and mostly it was, uh, you know, based on, uh, right wing, politics uh, mixed in with uh, diff- the different ideologies that were uh, and that are still around uh, today, uh, neo-Nazism, wow. white supremacy, all that kind of thing. Wow, that's amazing. How old were you when you got involved? Uh, I was in my late teens and uh, left in my early 30s. Wow, that, that's amazing. Um, how did you get involved in that? Like, was it just sort of like, do people get indoctrinated on the stuff largely online? Um, I mean, in, in my case, it wasn't it wasn't really online where that sort of happened. It was just I met with a, a person that I knew who had become involved in this stuff, and it was the music and sort of subcultural. Uh, if you're familiar with like like the skinhead kind of movement, sure. that kind of thing. Um, and and then yes, once online came, you know, with the, the different websites, the different communication forms for these uh, these different types of groups. Uh, that made it very, very, um, a lot easier to get in contact with other people who are interested in this. And right. of course, we're seeing with social media, that's just sort of blown up, right? So. Wow, that's incredible. How did you, what was the sort of the tipping point for you and uh, sort of change, turn your life around and get out of that? Um, you know, I would say that it it was a mixture of a lot of different things. I, I think it was um, having a family. I think it was exhaustion from uh, trying to live uh, in an ideological world that wasn't, uh, you know, doing, doing much for me. Um, it was very, um, you know, there, there was a lot of different things that were going on within this, that those movements, the violence, all of that kind of thing. This became, um, very exhausting to be part of and be in looking at the, the outcomes of the different things that were going on. It was just, um, you know, I had positive relationships in my life and I wanted to create a, um, you know, a safe, uh, you know, future for my, my family, uh, without this, uh, these types of gangs and violent movements uh, in my life. And, and, uh, uh, my wife was very helpful in, in helping me leave. So, yeah. 
That's, that's amazing. My guest is Brad Galloway. He's the coordinator at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. You just heard him describe his former life as as a skinhead in in the right wing extremist uh, movement. Is it? Um, I want to I want to pivot here to talk about what happened on Wednesday, Brad, and get your get your take on it. Like just lastly though, when you got out of that movement, like. Is that a, like a dangerous thing to be involved with? Like when when you tell when you leave the movement, is that a dangerous thing? I mean, were, were any of the people you you were involved with um, go to jail or anything like that? Are there crimes taking place? I mean, yeah. I mean, within these these movements, there's all sorts of that stuff going on. Um, it's not. Uh, it's definitely not a safe place. Um, as as much as they want to tell you that it's that it's about pride and respect and all of these different things, it's not about any of those things. Uh, the, the end game is always uh, violence and, and uh, racism and division. And I mean, that is, that is violent extremism, right? So it's, it's, yeah. that's what it's about. So, yeah. Incredible. What did you think when you saw the events on Wednesday in, in the U.S. Capitol? I mean, when you saw some of the people that just filled with anger in, invading the halls of the, of the U.S. Capitol, did, I don't know, what was going through your mind there? Were you thinking like, yeah, these are the type of, Type of pe- I know these people. I've, I I know what, where these people are coming from. Well, I mean, uh, immediately I saw you know different insignias and different people with tattoos that I recognized that were associated with these different far right movements. I saw um, you know different uh, group insignia stuff like that. You could you could re- that were very recognizable. Um, obviously, uh, things were very problematic looking at it from from a perspective of like. Um, you know, looking at last year when the Black Lives Matter were going to have a similar protest and, you know, there's military and police and full like riot gear there. And then we see a very low police presence uh, there, um, w- at least would seem very low from my perspective. Um, and these people entering the building and uh, vandalizing, defacing, uh, assaulting police officers. And then, of course, uh, unfortunately, um, several people losing their lives, which is, which is tragic in, in, in any event. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really tough to watch, uh, because just with my previous knowledge and, and everything, and, and, and of course the outcome was, was again, tragic. And, and just seeing that a Capitol building like that being taken by what are, uh, what, what I know as uh, right-wing extremists, it, um, yeah, it was really tough to watch. Yeah, we've heard like some of the names of these groups now are becoming more familiar to people that maybe a few months ago people hadn't never heard of some of these groups. But you know, mm-hmm. like we hear we hear names like the Proud Boys, uh, mm-hmm. the Oath Keepers. Are are, mm-hmm. are are these the type of groups you're talking about? Like, are, are you do you include those in, in, in a list of like groups extreme right wing extremist groups? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, uh, it's, I, I I don't want to get into a definitional debate, but for sure, I mean. Uh, the the Proud Boys are um, you know being seen as an alt right gang or or a right wing extremist group for sure, um, yeah. white supremacist groups. There's there's militia groups that, that fall under this you know overarching theme of of uh, right wing extremist groups, right? And yeah. that is um, um, and and the fact that there's so many from different ideological uh, standpoints um, is what is what makes me so. Uh, worried about about these groups and and their propensity towards violence. All right, welcome back to the show. We continue my discussion now with Brad Galloway, coordinator at the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism 
at Ontario Tech University. He spent 13 years in the right-wing extremist movement in Canada himself, and we're talking about the uh, situation that uh, with the events we saw unfold in Washington at the Capitol on on Wednesday. When you take a look at some of these groups, Brad, that we talked about earlier, like the Proud Boys, for example, maybe the mo- the most well-known uh, group or example. Uh, listed as an extremist group by the FBI in the United States, but you know, of course, they say, "Oh, we're not an extremist group. We're just a bunch of guys who who, who believe in we're patriots, right?" I mean, I'm sure you've heard that before. Like, wh- what are what are the the main sort of talking points that these right wing groups say when they say, "Oh, we're not extremists. We're not white supremacists. We're just patriots." What are they talking about there? Well, I mean, if if we boil that down, so. Um I'm not certain there's any patriot of the United States who would walk around with a Nazi flag because, you know, when you think about it, uh, we all went to, to war with, uh, in World War II against the Nazis, right? Um, so they, a lot of the time, they, they, what I'm saying is they misrepresent this word of patriot. What are they a patriot to? It's, um, you know, in the past, they called themselves freedom fighters or, or revolutionaries or, or whatever they want to call themselves. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, these, these groups fall under white supremacy. They fall under right-wing extremists. They fall under uh, sometimes domestic terrorists, de- depending on what, what's gone on. Um, there's been a heck of a debate going on about w- which type of terrorism uh, this was, uh, this breach of the, uh, of the Capitol building. So, yeah. um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement that it, it probably was. Uh, the fact that there's a lot of uh, known members of, of, of right-wing extremist groups, um, uh, taking part in this in, in this in this behavior um, and these actions uh, where people lost their lives and and you know um, federal property was damaged. There's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of there's a laundry list of criminal uh, code offenses that are would be uh, put into play here too. So right. I mean, a, a lot of people, a lot of know. people, a lot of people would say though, what about the what about the left wing extremists, right? Like what about Antifa. Uh, do you think Antifa is an extremist group? <laughs> um, I don't think Antifa is a group. So that that's my outlook on that. I mean, these are often uh, a person to be an anti-fascist is just a that's an individual choice. I mean, I believe there could be a loose knit, uh, you know, uh, group of people that may uh, adapt the same uh, viewpoints about fascists. Uh, that that may get together and protest uh, fascism, uh, and and we're seeing examples of fascists going right to the Capitol building and creating violence, murder, uh, all sorts of things. Right. So, um, do I think Antifa is a is a terrorist group? No, uh, they're not a violent extremist group. That in my in my uh, well, we saw well, we saw lots of violence though, across America in the last last year. Right. Lots of buildings sure getting burned, shootings, violence. Yes. Um, and what could that be attributed to? I, you know, um, I'd have to look, uh, look at each incident, uh, to know, you know, what these, which groups, these part these people were part of. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I, I think, I think that's a, that's a tougher debate though, trying to figure out what, you know, uh, cause there was a lot of different things going on. I mean, we had protests about, about police shootings. We had protests about racism. We had, there's a lot of different things going on. So yeah. I think that's a lot different than, um, known right-wing extremist groups, like you mentioned, like Proud Boys or, or Oath Keepers or, or Three Percenters or something like this, actually going to the Capitol building and doing something like that. I think those are, um, you know, I, I think this is a, 
a fairly isolated and serious incident um, um, in in that sense. I'm, I'm definitely not undermining violence. I think that um, there def- definitely can be violence from the left uh, yeah. w- without, uh, you know, uh, without information about which groups they were or, or what identifiable groups. I, I, I can't, I can't confirm which right. groups did which things. Right? Speak, but, yeah. Speaking of, uh, speaking of the events in, in the Capitol, uh, yeah. we, we're now waiting for inauguration day in, in a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. some people are wondering if we could see, we could see more, more mayhem. Uh, the, USA Today reporting that uh, the events on Wednesday were actually an effective recruiting tool for right-wing extremist groups of people who may have seen what, you know, the whole world saw what happened. Let me play this for you. This is a short clip of uh, U.S. President Donald Trump talking about the transfer of power. He, He says it will be peaceful. Here's Trump. Now Congress has certified the results. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. My focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. Okay, do you think there could be more trouble to come down the road, maybe on Inauguration Day? Really, really hope not, but I I definitely have seen on on, uh, some right-wing social media areas uh, and on different apps that they are saying that uh, there, there will be you know, they're calling for uh, more violence. So um, mm. is, is that for sure going to happen? Well, you and I, we, it's our best guess, right? Uh, at this point, uh, we really hope that, that nothing else uh, goes down like that because that was uh, obviously some tragic events that we were seeing on Wednesday. Um, I hope what the, what the current president is saying uh, is, is true and that it will be peaceful, of course. But, um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of... Um, Right. There's a lot of contention out there right now. We just got a, a, a we just got one minute left here, Brad. Do you think that we we hear reports that right, some right wing extremist groups could be using Wednesday's attack on the U.S. Congress as as a recruiting tool to uh, attract more people to their move to the movement? Is, is that possible? A hundred percent, I think so. Um, a, a lot of the a lot of the chatter that I've been seeing is that it was a win, and I'll be clear that this was not a win. People lost their lives. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, this was not an, uh, this event was not a win in any, in any structure. So anyone who thinks that it might be a good idea to go out there and join one of these groups, uh, it's the wrong idea. Uh, they will be recruiting anytime there's this type of thing that they, they try to, uh, recruit new, new people and get new people interested. So, yeah. Okay. We continue to watch it very closely. Brad, you're a very interesting guy. Thanks a lot for coming on today. No worries. My pleasure. Okay.